Welcome to episode 17 of the Free People Move podcasts. I hope you're all having a great start to 2017 so far, whatever you're doing. And we are starting off the year with a very, very exciting chat because today I'll be having a talk with Simon Ann Holt, who is creator of the Good Country Index, among many, many other great ideas. And uh, just a heads up, it is by far the longest podcast we've ever done so far. I think it's about an hour, but trust me, every minute is totally worth it. Because in this hour, we'll be discussing what is a good country and how you can help your country become better, um, how you can vote globally, why it's important to generally not be angry at people's views, whatever they might be, and uh, mean people writing emails, among other things. So uh, I hope you have fun listening and see you soon. Hi, Simon. Hi. How are you? I'm I'm okay, thank you. Great. How's England? Yeah, dark and cold and quiet. So to start out, for our listeners who don't know who you are yet, could you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Um, Well, they call me Simon and um, for the last... Uh, most of the last 15 years, I've been a, a government advisor, um, and I have had an unusual job. I specialize in the people who run countries, um, presidents, prime ministers, and occasionally even monarchs, um, 54 of them at the last count. So I've been kind of busy and mainly advising those governments and leaders and countries on how they can uh, engage more effectively with the rest of humanity. Um sort of grand strategy. What is your country for and how are you going to help the world and how are you going to make people feel glad that your country exists in the future? So that's been a fun, cool job. Um, and um, I decided um, back in about 2012 or so that I wanted to move on a bit and particularly in the area of trying to find ways of making these countries behave themselves even more than they were doing because I was asking them which was not at all. <laughs> I mean, I was giving them lots of great advice, but they never took it. Um, and so I thought, well, who do they listen to if they don't listen to me? I guess they listen to their populations. So that was the point at which I decided to go public. And I created this thing called The Good Country. And that's what I do now. I run The Good Country. Right. So before we talk about The Good Country Index specifically, um, could you just tell me in general, in your opinion, in your own words, what is a good country? A, a good country, oh, if only there were one that I could show you as an example. Of course, countries are very mixed. Um, but the ideal, imaginary, impossible good country uh, is the country that somehow manages to care as much about every man, woman, child and animal on the planet as it does about its own citizens. And somehow manages to care as much about the entirety of the planet as it does about its own little slice of territory. That's the first thing. And the second thing that a good country does um, is that it is much more interested and achieves much better results by cooperating and collaborating with other countries and organizations than it does by constantly competing and constantly trying to shaft them. So it's not exclusively driven by competition. That's a good country. Right. How did the idea of the Good Country Index start and um, what, what is it? 
Well, this was a really uh, an interesting experiment to try and perform, and nobody had ever really tried to do this before. There, there are, of course, as, as we know, um, dozens if not hundreds of country rankings out there. Um, you know, the, the open secret is that journalists love them. So if anybody, it's, it's kind of a ready-made story for a lazy journalist, and frankly, there are not very many other kinds of journalists around these days. Um, and so everybody knows that if you want to get some media attention, all you have to do is to release an index. And the vast majority of indexes out there are not really very serious. Um, but they do all have one thing in common, which is that they're all measuring countries separately, as if they were kind of islands. And they're all looking inwards. So they're looking at how transparent that country is, or how generous to its own citizens, or how happy everybody is, or how rapid their birth rate, or their growth rate, or their death rate, or their mortality, infant mortality rate is, and so forth. And it just struck me that that was really peculiar, because if there's one thing you can say about the modern world, that is that the boundaries between countries don't really have as much meaning as they used to. And we're all connected and we're all part of the same system and everything we do affects somebody else sooner or later. And so how come nobody ever thought of measuring what countries do to each other? Um, so the Good Country Index attempts, and I say attempts because, of course, it fails, but it attempts to measure how much each country on earth contributes to the whole system. So how much good do you do to humanity and the planet outside your own borders? And how much harm do you do? So it's kind of a balance sheet. So each country can look at its rankings, and they're quite complex. It's, there are 35 different indicators in there. And you can look at them and you can say, here we are a net creditor to humanity. Here we are a net debtor. Here we're giving more than we take. Here we're taking more than we give. Or indeed, if you're near the bottom of the index, you can look at it and you can say to yourself, hmm, we actually generally speaking, are a free rider on the human race. And maybe we should change. Right, so basically your issue with all these existing indexes was that they're usually very internal instead of looking at kind of the outwards effect of, of each country's actions. Right, right, and exactly right. And, and that reflects the way that we look at countries, doesn't it? I mean, whenever you hear people talking about the nations of the earth, they're always asking uh, questions about how well they do. Um, you know, how well are they doing on education or health or um, life expectancy or, or, or money? Um, but you never ask what they do outside their own borders. So that's, that's what it tries to do. And, and basically, um, what I and my colleague Robert Govers did, it took us about two years to do the first edition, was we searched around and we tried to find all of the really good, reliable, robust statistics that were available out there for the things that countries do to each other, good and bad. So everything ranging from how many people does your country kill um, in outside your own borders, uh, right the way to how many um, international treaties do you sign and how quickly, um, how much do you do to make the world work better and how much harm do you do? So there are some good ones and some bad ones. We ended up with 35. So there are 35 indicators in there which are reliable and which are carried out every year and they're carried out for most countries on earth. The first edition of the index, we ended up managing to cover 125 countries. Um, the second one, it managed to get up to 165. So there's still 40-odd countries missing because we don't have enough data. And of course, may I just say to all the people who write to me in their dozens every day saying, where is Tajikistan? 
And I write back and I say, well, it's in Central Asia. And if you go down to Kazakhstan and turn left, you can't miss it. Um, what they're really saying is, why isn't my country included? And my message to them is, um, you know, the letters F-A-Q and what they stand for. Um, you should just read it. Okay, it's not because I don't believe in Tajikistan or I've never heard of it or I'm an ignorant fool who's never been to Central Asia or I have a personal grudge against Tajikistan and want to pretend that it doesn't exist. It's because there isn't enough data. And people are so rude. I mean, I think this is the social media, but I'm still not used to getting emails that just they don't even say, dear Simon or hello, this is me. They just write to you and they say, where's Tajikistan? And I'm afraid it really puts my back up. Do you get people who do that? Do you, they write to you and they say, where's Djibouti? Oh, yeah, we definitely feel you there. Um, we get the uh, classic, my city is an indie product, therefore you are a terrible and unfair company. Quite a bit with Teleport a lot. Plus the uh, usual, you know, your data is wrong, what is wrong with you kind of sort of thing. And we always try to explain to people, you know, obviously that cities are added to the products based on votes and that sometimes some very important data is missing on certain cities. Um, because, you know, we don't make this data up. Like, we get it from different sources, and sometimes it's just not there. And uh, most people are nice, but some are just absolutely terrible. And, uh, yeah, like you mentioned as well. But, like, my personal favorite thing to do is to reply to these absolutely horrendous emails, like, personally, very politely. And then it's quite funny to look at how, like, people immediately, like, email back and apologize for being a bit douchey in the first place. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I, I think it's a lot like road rage. You know, the theory is that people are incredibly rude to other people uh, in their cars because they don't quite see that they're human beings because they're inside a metal box. I think the internet does the same thing. I think a lot of these people would never dream of being as rude as that to an ordinary person if they met them in the street. But because you're on the internet... And especially if you've given a TED talk, they imagine you're some kind of celebrity, which would be great if it were true. And they therefore think that they, you know, you're not really a person. So they can say whatever the hell they like, and you're never going to read it, and you're never going to answer. And I get people writing stuff like that to me. I mean, the worst stuff, you know, you are a worthless piece of crap, and you should never have been born. And what's your problem? And this, that and the other. And I write back to them and I'm always very polite. And I say, I think maybe you've misunderstood and let me try and enlighten you. And they, and they write back and they say, oh, I didn't mean to be rude. Yeah, right. <laughs> you just told me I was a piece of worthless crap who should have been shot at birth and you weren't meaning to be rude. It's exactly like um, kids in a, in a schoolroom who think that the teacher's not in the room and they're saying awful things about the teacher. And then suddenly they discover that he or she's standing behind them. Right, so you said that the Good Country Index attempts, and you very specifically said attempts, but of course it fails to show how much each country contributes to the global well-being. What do you mean by it fails? Why does it fail? Well, it fails. It's bound to fail, isn't it? Because, I mean, how can you possibly measure um, something as complicated as that, what a, what a country gives to the world? Even even in a specific moment in time. And that's another thing, of course, that, that has to be emphasized. A lot of people don't understand this, that the, you know, this is an almost impossible task anyway, from the data perspective. Um, and the one thing you could never do is to try to give a historical overview, because that would be impossibly subjective. Um, and of course, I, uh, the other thing I get is a lot of people writing to me and saying, well, what about Hitler? How come Germany's so high? And I have to remind them that, you know, uh, the Holocaust was quite a long time ago. And it took me the best part of two years to research one year. 
So if I was going back to 1939, then it would take me 186 years um, to prepare the index. And it would be impossibly subjective anyway, because the kind of data I'm using simply didn't exist back then. So the most important thing I think to, for, to, that people should understand is this is a single point in time. It's just a snapshot. I'm, I'm not interested in trying to um, blame people's ancestors for what they did to somebody else uh, 80 or 100 or 500 years ago, because where would you even draw the line? I mean, you know, people are still arguing about uh, about who was actually responsible for the Battle of Thermopylae in BC, whatever it was. Um, so, you know, it's just a point in time. And even so, it's impossible to account for everything because not everything is measured. And most of the things uh, that are really interesting and really important aren't measured and aren't measurable. I mean, you know, for example... Um, one of the worst things I think that a country can do uh, to the international community, one of the bad things it can do, um, is to um, is to launder money, right? So I would love to have some data in there that measures the amount of uh, of illegal funds that get uh, processed through certain countries, because I don't think countries should be allowed to get away with that kind of stuff, and it should be marked against them. But where do you find the data for that? And if you were lucky, you could find it for five or six countries. But if I don't have it for at least 125 countries, I can't include it because it would be unfair on the others. Um, so you, you see why I say it's impossible. But, the, the, but, but I still do it. And I still think that it's better to do it than not to do it because it's making a point And it's encouraging people to have new kinds of conversations about countries, the kinds of conversations they haven't been having up until now which is instead of constantly saying, how well is it doing? Finally, with this index, uh, you know, flawed as it is, at least it provokes these questions. How much is it doing? And so people are asking new questions about countries, and that's all I really want to achieve. Well, where would we be if no one ever attempted anything, right? Thank you, Ellen. I need people to say that. So there are quite many aspects that you measure in the index. Um, there's science and technology, there's culture, there's international peace and security, world order, so on. Um, I'll link it down below for you guys so you can see uh, what they all are. But out of these kind of aspects that you take into account when measuring uh, the, the goodness of a country, do you have any personal kind of favorites that you on a completely individual level think are extra important? Well, I'm just like anybody else, and I've got my own personal favourites. Um, and because everybody's like that, um, I have to exclude it, because it's impossible to give any weighting. Um, that's the technical term, sorry, for people who don't know about statistics. Weighting just basically means um, that some, some uh, indicators are regarded as being more important than others, so they carry more weight. Right. So, for example, you take something like the number of people that a country is, is responsible for killing outside its own borders... Every person they kill, obviously, we would say, should carry more weight against that country's overall score than the fact that it might have failed to stop one drug trafficker or that it might have emitted, you know, one ton of CO2 extra. Right. So we all have um, our own priorities. The trouble is that it's impossible to be objective about it because everybody's priorities are different. And we all have our own pet causes and we all have our own personal morality and it varies hugely. So basically, waiting becomes impossible to do objectively. So what I do is nothing. I basically rank them all at exactly the same level. And I say to people, for that reason, 
don't look too hard at the overall rankings. Okay, they're in, they tell an interesting story, but if you really want to find out the differences between countries, you've got to look at the individual data sets and make up your own mind. You know, the fact that, for example, a country like Sweden does so much for the good of humanity, it saves so many lives, it takes in so many refugees, it publishes so many valuable scientific papers that go all over the world, all of that great stuff. But it also is an enormous exporter of weapons all over the world, which are then used to kill people. So what's the balance? I can't tell you that because it's up to you. And so, so that's why we leave it unweighted. One of the things I really want to do, and um, one of these days I hope I won't have to carry on paying for this index out of my own not very deep pockets, and some, I'll, find, I'll sit next to a plane next to an internet billionaire and he or she will give me some money to start doing this thing even more properly than I'm doing it at the moment. One of the things I will then do when I've you know, sat next to Elon Musk and he's given me... Actually, do I now have to send my Tesla back because he's become an advisor to Donald Trump? I think I do. Oh, yeah, good times. We've uh, had this conversation in Hellport as well. You're all sending your Teslas back, are you? Well, unless one of us is hiding something big, I don't actually think any of us have a Tesla. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll see. Maybe maybe it's better to be, um, as they say vulgarly in my country, better inside the tent pissing out than outside pissing in. Anyway, as I was saying, forgive me, um, what were we talking about? Uh, pissing in tents. No, uh, rich people giving you money. Oh, waiting, yeah. So when Elon Musk, not Elon Musk, when somebody nice gives me some money, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let people create their own waiting, which I think is a smart way of doing this. So you basically have a questionnaire on the site which asks people in a reasonably neutral and scientific way what the things that they care about are. And then it creates an algorithm which then applies a personal ranking. So it spits out your own personal good country index. So according to the things that you think are important, this is the goodest country on earth and so forth. By the way, the other, the other thing that we need to do, the other thing that, that uh, maybe you were going to ask me about also is the fact that it's um, in order to create a level, a level playing field between all of these countries, who of course have vastly different resources, land areas, populations, blah, 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 um, most of the data gets divided by GDP. So it's all of, most of these uh, rankings are relative to the size of the country's economy. Now, that may seem like a perverse way of doing it. We did try uh, dividing it by population and by GNI and various other things. Reassuringly, it produced very similar results in every case. But for various technical reasons, I won't bore you with um, dividing by GDP was the thing that worked best. So when, for example, Ireland came top in the first edition, that was relative to the size of its economy. Now, a lot of people, Americans particularly, don't like that. And they say, well, that's just a trick to make America come 21st. And if you didn't divide by the size of the economy, then America would be the, uh, the goodest country on earth. I don't know. I haven't tried to do the calculation, but it seems to me to be a reasonable request. So if it's not too complicated, one of the things I'd like to do in the future is to have two rankings, one divided by GDP, um, so it's a level playing field, and one absolute um, contributions. Oh, and, and also um, the other thing side to side, because a lot of people say, well, what about what these countries do inside their own boundaries? You know, for example, uh, Egypt ranks really highly on peace and security um, because it doesn't do very much harm outside its own borders, but it does quite a lot of harm inside its own borders. Doesn't that mean anything to you? And I say, well, of course it means something to me. It's just not what I'm measuring. And there are a hundred other surveys out there that do measure that. Why don't you go look at one of those if that's what you're interested in? So uh, one of the things I want to do also is to get a really good survey 
like, for example, the um, the Sustainable Progress Index, which is a really good general one to figure out how countries are faring domestically and put that next to it. So you can say, OK, this country scores really well in terms of its contribution to the rest of the world. And next to it, here is how it treats its own people. So compare those. Yeah, I, th- I think you have a really good point with the individual standpoint. Um, we focus on that a lot. And I feel like it needs to be said out loud a lot. Um, you know, the, the fact that we can we can make this general list or this general index or, or ranking or whatever. But in the end, you have to go and pick your own preferences, pick the things that matter to you. And, and then only then it has any meaning to you and you get any real results. We could talk for three weeks about this subject. And trust me, I would love to. However, I'm not entirely sure how people would feel about a three-week-long podcast. Um, some kind of record for sure. I haven't even let you ask any questions yet. Oh, I will ask questions, don't worry. <laughs> so this thing you're doing, it's obviously data-driven. You're very data-driven. It's all very real. Um, do you think this index will eventually start playing an actual role in how people, or even governments and organizations, behave? Do you think they will start looking to this index to see how they can make their country better. Mm. Um, That would be wonderful. I mean, one of the things that I've I've had some interesting conversations at the level of individual sectors. So, for example, with um, people who are in the business of ethical travel. Um, There's a lot of interest from that sector in the Good Country Index because they're basically saying to me, our um, ethical travellers, they have a very particular strong interest in knowing that the places they go on vacation um, they're not contributing to an economy that's damaging the planet or um, other countries or what have you. So it turns out the Good Country Index is a very good scale for ethical travellers and also ethical purchases. You know, I want to make my investments in an ethical country. I want to buy my products from an ethical country. Where do you get that kind of data at that kind of level of generality? Well, you can get it from the Good Country Index. To be honest, I think it'll be another few years before people really start using it to guide their behaviour. A, because it takes that long for indexes to acquire the kind of reputation that, um, that, that, that means, means people really trust them. Um, and B, because it's not good enough yet. Um, I think it's great, but it's not good enough yet to, for example, guide investments. It's not complete enough. Um, you know, it may look, because there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of uh, data sets in there, um, that it's very complete. But it's really not, because what I'm trying to measure is so vast um, but I, I, I hope we'll get there in the end. You accused me of being very data-driven a moment ago. Can I just defend myself against that? Um, I'm really not data-driven at all. I mean, I, I, I have this kind of... Um, I've acquired over the years the ability to make it sound as if I know what I'm talking about when I deal with statistics, but um, it's, it's, it's fraudulent because I, I know absolutely nothing about statistics and couldn't care less about them. Um, the Good Country Index is, as far as I'm concerned... Um, not the main event in what I'm doing. And it is more um, an act of public diplomacy than it is of um, measurement. I'm much more interested in trying to uh, change the world than in trying to measure it. Measuring things is, in this, in my area, not your area, but in my area, measuring things is a bit of a dead end um, because it becomes very easy and very tempting to kind of retreat into this delightful scholarly cul-de-sac where instead of actually doing anything about the things that are wrong with the planet, you're just measuring them endlessly. And 
I think that's the definition, really, of running away from the problems. So, so the point about the good country and the point about me and what I'm trying to do at this this stage in my life is, um, in some ways, not really well represented by the good country index because that's just a tool. It's a way to get people on board with this subject and to get them, as I said before, asking the right questions. But really and truly, the good country is a grassroots global popular movement. It's designed to get people behaving differently. Well, I'm really sorry for accusing you of such terrible things, um, but for what it's worth, you at least definitely sound like you know what you're talking about most of the time. Thank you. I'm so glad I've got that off my chest. Okay, so say I really like the good country idea. Say I want to actively do something to help my country become a better one. Um, you mentioned earlier that everyone kind of has their pet projects. Um, so is it just important to take those pet projects and actively work on improving those areas? Or what could I do as a single person to help my country be better? Um, well, clearly, um, one person on their own are not going to achieve very much unless they're doing the same thing as lots of other people. And I guess, uh, like pretty much any other initiative in this general area, what the good country is trying to do is it's trying to gather together and marshal all the people who basically um, see the world through the same sort of lens and trying to get them perhaps to do little things, but because they're a large number, they will amount to a great deal. Broadly speaking, it's about trying to um, get the message across to their governments that they would like to live in a good country and not necessarily just a successful country. The, the rules have changed. Um, the way that I, I normally... Th this is still, forgive me, a little bit theoretical, but I think it's important to explain. Um, people in positions of power and responsibility have always had a single mandate in the past. If you become prime minister or CEO or whatever, you're responsible for your own people and your own slice of territory. And I think that in the world of globalization, all of these gigantic shared challenges like climate change and migration and terrorism and nuclear proliferation and pandemics and everything else, it's perfectly obvious that that's not going to work if countries are just pursuing their own ends. They have to collaborate and cooperate together much, much, much more. It has to be um, the standard. The standard of good governance is to do the right thing for your own people and at the same time the right thing for everybody else and that's perfectly possible now the only way that we're going to achieve that change is if people tell politicians that that's what they want that that's the new mandate that you have to look after us and everybody else and this is about americans saying to donald trump yeah america first is absolutely fine as long as that doesn't mean everybody else last and making america great again of course is absolutely wonderful if only it doesn't mean making everybody else small. And you see, I don't have a problem with Donald Trump saying America first. It's a statement of the bleeding obvious. Of course, the president of a country is going to do the right thing for his people. That's what he's there to do. That's what he'd been elected for. But what I find so depressing and old fashioned about his, his worldview, um, and I suppose this is something he learned in business, is that means screwing everybody else. And that is what is driving humanity to perdition. The fact that We've got 21st century globalized problems, and yet all the nations of the earth are still basically 17th century warring tribes, um, screaming nationalist slogans at each other. And this is absolutely bonkers. So I've done a little bit of research to try to find out how many people in the world agree with me on this. Um, people who, if you like, think of themselves as being citizens of the world as much as they are citizens of uh, America or Djibouti or Uruguay or wherever it is. 
And it turns out that there's a real, real, real hardcore of people who believe that very, very deeply indeed. And they don't just believe it. It's the rule, their rule of life. They love that idea. They want to be humans and they want to travel and they want to live in other places and they want to be mongrels um, and they want to enjoy globalization and the stirring together of cultures. And they despise racism and intolerance and inward-looking behavior and so on and so forth. Well, that hardcore, it turns out, the really hardcore is about 10% of the world's population, according to my research, um, it sounds like a small percentage, but it's a very large number. There's 700 million people. So out there, and I know from the research more or less exactly where they live all over the world, there are 700 million people who are really, really, really not at all happy with the inwards and backwards looking uh, message of the new, this new breed of nationalist, separatist, isolationist uh, leaders. And they want to go the other way. They believe that globalization could be a good thing if we manage it better in the future and um, believe that it's better to act together than to fight and believe that the world could be a wonderful place if only we understood that working together produces better results than fighting against each other. I, I said that Don, I, I gave Donald Trump the excuse that he came from business, but actually it's a very bad excuse because it was industry that discovered back in the 70s, um, long ago, the principle of co-opetition in the auto industry particularly, that if you collaborate with your competitors, the whole industry improves. And it's high time that governments started doing the same thing. So business ought to understand this, frankly, better than politicians do. But maybe he's not such a great businessman. I don't know. We'll see. Um, so that's basically, that's basically what it's all about. And um, what I try to do with exercises like the Good Country Index and the Global Vote, and there'll be many more of these, I hope, in the coming years, if the good Lord spares me, um, which will enable people to um, try and achieve that culture change. Right. So basically trying to kind of collectively achieve this mindset of not being a giant douchebag and just looking beyond our own geographic area. <laughs> I think that puts it beautifully. Right. Let's move on from the good country index for a bit and uh, talk about the global vote. Right. What is the global vote? Well, the, it, it occurred to me earlier this year that there's something very strange about the fact that um, when there's a national election, let's just take the US election because that's been the noisiest one in, in recent memory, um, you've got a relatively small number of people, i.e. the electorate of the United States of America, voting on a decision which is going to have a direct impact on billions and billions of people all around the world. Um, so 140, 200, I don't know how many it is, 140 million Americans selecting their next president um, and 7 billion people are going to be affected by that directly, not least because in a, in a month or so somebody is going to hand Donald J. Trump the uh, codes for America's nuclear deterrent. Um, so we're all potentially affected by that. And it just strikes me that this is not very democratic. Um, or take Brexit. You know, you've got, uh, what, 40 million uh, Brits, or however many it is, voting on whether to stay in or leave the European Union, a momentous historical decision, which is going to directly affect the lives, not only of every man, woman, child in the British Isles, but also everybody in Europe as well. And that's not very democratic. 
So what I did in June was I, I created this platform called the Global Vote, which enables anybody in the world to vote in any other country's elections. And it's obviously a symbolic vote in the sense that we can't actually bring those people to power. In fact, normally I don't even release the results until after the actual election has taken place because the last thing I want to do is to try to affect the outcome of any particular election. But what I'm trying to do is slowly, gradually, patiently remind people that elections are more than about domestic issues these days. And the person that you choose to run your country or the outcome that you choose in a referendum is not only going to affect you and your fellow citizens, it's going to affect people all over the world. And it's just amazing to me. We cover an election um, pretty much every month. And what I do is I post on the on the website, which is the good.country website, um, a rundown of each of the candidates for the presidency or whatever the election is. And very neutral, very balanced. I don't tease or criticize. I just give the facts. And I explain what their attitude towards the rest of the world appears to be. And everybody, the global voters, have to vote purely on that. I'm not asking them to consider um, whether uh, presidential candidate Hatla Thomas Dothir uh, is going to do the right thing for the Icelanders in the Icelandic election, because that's none of our business. We're not Icelanders. We don't live there. That's up to them to choose. But we do want to have a say on whether if she's elected president, sadly she wasn't, she was the runner-up, um, whether she's going to be a good member of the international leadership group. Because as I reminded the Prime Minister of Great Britain in a tweet the other day, um, when you become the head of state or the head of government of a country, you join the team that runs the planet. And so your responsibilities are not exclusively to your own population. So that's why the global vote exists. So do you think that in the future there is any chance that the global vote might start playing an actual role in elections? For example, it would account for a certain percent of the local votes or, or anything like that, like a direct influence from the global vote? I th <clears throat> it would be a good idea if, we c if, it were, if it remained limited to the question only of international principles. So you wouldn't want to elect um, a prime minister or a president to, into any country purely on the strength of their of their their foreign policy, but it should be considered alongside it. So we get into weighting issues again, don't we? But maybe if it were possible for the global vote to um, be worth, I don't know, 5% of the domestic vote, that would be a wonderful thing, yes. Um, but most of the time, I, when I say I don't, I don't, I'm not really interested in the outcome of the individual election, I mean, obviously there are uh, elections where I really do care very much. I was very anxious, for example, that Norbert Hofer, um, the far-right presidential candidate in Austria, should not win, just because I was horrified at the idea of, uh, of Western Europe having its first far-right head of state since Adolf Hitler. Um, you know, I think that's taking the current uh, movement just a little bit too far. Um, and he didn't get in. But that's kind of an exception. Yes, OK, I didn't especially want Donald J. Trump as president of the United States. Um, but we'll see. We'll see wh whether, whether he makes a, a good fist of it or not. Um, I don't really care about domestic elect elections. I don't care about domestic politics. All this nonsense about left and right and centre, it's, it's just bizarre. It's 100 years out of date. And what, I would, what, what I'm much more interested in is how countries deal with each other. Um, so, so, yes, please, if I can have the global vote account for 5% of the outcome of those domestic elections, I'll be very happy. Okay, I'm not trying to be a dick by asking this question. I'm just genuinely curious. Do you vote yourself? No. 
I voted. I voted um, on Brexit because that was a, a, that was a policy choice on which I had um, a, an informed view. I hope, but in terms of um, voting for politicians, I, I never, I never have, and the reason is simply because I don't agree with the party political system. Like a lot of people, I think of my our generation. Um, I can't frame myself, brand myself as left wing or right wing, conservative, liberal, Christian Democrat, or whatever. Those labels just mean nothing to me. And I, like a lot of people, I I buy uh, policies, not governments, in the same way that I buy tracks, not albums. And I don't see why I should have to commit to one bunch of people because you know because uh, because they're right wing or left wing or centre wing or broken wing. And then I, I basically have to agree with everything they do, whether I agree with it or not. I, I think government should be a technocratic process, not an ideological one. Right. Do you know those people who always say that, well, if you don't vote, then you got to shut up forever because, you know, you didn't participate and you have no say in anything anymore. What do you what do you say to those people? I mean, I'm not one of them, but hypothetically, what would you say? You know, I understand. I understand. And people do sometimes say that to me. Um, the fact of the matter is that I've chosen to um, have a to, to play a tiny role in the future of my country in other ways. I just happen to think that in the ballot box, um, it's not the way that I choose to make a difference. I think if instead of voting, I was simply um, sitting at home on my bum watching the television, then that would be an important question to ask me. And it would be important for me to have a pretty smart answer pretty quickly. But because I spend um, every hour of my working day when I ought to be earning some money and feeding my family, trying to make the whole world a better place and with it Great Britain, I don't feel too guilty about not exercising my democratic mandate because I'm, I'm, just, I'm just tackling the problem from, a, from an angle which I choose to believe is going to be slightly more effective. So to pull the good country and global vote topic together, um, your ultimate goal, as I understood it, is that you want to change how people think um, and make them go from this internal type of thinking to thinking outside their borders and actively trying to improve. Or, or how, would you, how would you word it? What's your, what's your ultimate vision? Yeah, very well put. It's, uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to change the culture of governance worldwide from fundamentally uh, competitive to fundamentally collaborative. That's the, that's the quickest and simplest way I can put it. But I should, I should stress um, that the good country is not, and, and never will be, and is not designed to be uh, a movement, an NGO, uh, an NGO, an organization. I don't want to find myself in five years' time running something like Greenpeace and having to you know, get uh, a thousand new members every day so that I can carry on funding marketing to get new members. The, the good country is an idea, right? It's an idea. It's an idea who I think whose time has come. I, it seems very appropriate to me at the moment, particularly in the light of all this horrible nationalism that's arising everywhere, because it's truly the antidote to it. Um, it's an idea like feminism or environmentalism, uh, communism, if you like. Now, communism is a bad example because that was driven from a central point, but there was no feminism central Feminism wasn't an NGO headed by one individual. What I really want this to be is a movement of movements so that, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not Louis Vuitton trying to stop people copying my handbags. I want people to copy my handbag. Um, what I want is people all over the world to come up with their own good country ideas or 
good city, good university, good school, good family ideas, because the, the basic ideas that it's better to cooperate than to, than to compete, um, they scale down beautifully to the level of a, of a, of a village, uh, a company, whatever group of people. And every day when I get an email from somebody around the world, maybe somebody who's seen my TED talk or, or, or somebody who's um, uh, voted in the global vote or something like that, and they say, oh, I'm teaching a class of uh, geography students in Bangladesh and we just used the global vote and we just voted in the Zambian election on the global vote and uh, my kids all voted and they're not even old enough to vote in their national elections in Bangladesh and they loved it and please can we carry on doing this and so forth or I get a bunch of activists in Australia saying we can we use the um, the, the matrix behind the good country index to quiz our politicians on the in the upcoming elections that's what I love to hear um, I, I want to hear that people are stealing this idea and using it, abusing it, claiming it as their own, corrupting it, messing around with it, copying it, duplicating it, uh, distorting it, growing it, developing it. That's, that's what needs to happen. I'm going to carry on pumping in ideas of my own um, for the time being, uh, just because I, that will help to get the word out. But in the end, I don't want this to be mine. I want this to, be, to belong to the 700 million. What's the what's the feedback you've gotten on all of this so far? Like, has it been supportive or doubtful or anything else? I'll give you the I'll give you the the, the extremes. So um, the the lower extreme, particularly after the Good Country Index, is um, <clears throat> angry young American males um, writing to me in fury because America came twenty first, which I persist in thinking is quite a good ranking. Um, saying, um, if you queer, commie, European bastards aren't grateful to us for saving you from the Nazis, uh, the commies, and uh, the Japanese, a chapter of history I wasn't previously familiar with, but a lot of people have lectured me about this recently, so I have to believe that's what happened. Um, If you're not grateful, um, then we're not going to damn well help you again. Um, So may you rot in hell. And... um, in similar vein, lots and lots and lots of people very angry that um, their pet country was ranked too high or the country they hate uh, was ranked too low or the country they hate was ranked too, too high. OK, so just taking it very personally. And that, of course, proves that nationalism is out there and alive and well. And it's a red hot passion. And I detest it. Nationalism is a brutal pathology. And I would like to see it one day become as taboo and as old-fashioned as sexism have started to become in the modern age. At the other end of the scale, thank God, many, 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 many times more, uh, ever since my first TED Talk went out, I get hundreds and hundreds of people every week writing to me and saying, Ellen, I kid you not, um, all my adult life I've been waiting for somebody to explain to me what's gone wrong with the world and how we can fix it in terms that I can understand, and you've just done it, what do you want me to do? And if I were American, I'd say I was humbled by these emails. I'm not American. I'm not humbled. I'm thrilled to bits. Um, And I feel an obligation to these people to try and give them something to do. So that's what I'm trying to do. So what do you tell these people exactly? Well, what I say to them um, is, what, what, what do you care about most? And at what level um, is this idea meaningful to you? 
If you're the kind of person who's happy to think on a global scale, who's happy to think in terms of countries and the world and the planet and all the rest of it, um, then we can talk about how you can help the sort of main thrust of the, the global vote and the good country index and all the rest of it. The majority of people, however, find that, uh, and this includes me, by the way, it makes their brain hurt thinking about the whole world for more than about five minutes at a time. And actually what really makes sense to them is the university where they're studying or the school where they're doing their exams or the village they live in or the city that they care about and what have you. And so what I say to them is, let's see if between us, or maybe from the experience of other good country members in the past, we can cook up a little project or movement or a thing you can write or a thing you can do, a little campaign, something that gets across this point about being gooder at the level of your, you know, making your university the goodest university or making your village the goodest village. Um, so <laughs> I admit there's an element of competition in that, but that's fine because competition is, is good if it gets people working in the right direction. So that's basically what I say to them. I, I say, don't, you know, I can't, I get a lot of people wanting to be hired and I, I, I can't even pay myself. Um, and I certainly don't have an office that they can come and sit in and push paper around all day. That's not what we're trying to do at all. What I want them to do is to stay where they are, where they know people, where they've got links and connections and where people listen to them and where they can make a difference and allow themselves to be inspired by this bigger picture of uh, being, being gooder and what that actually means. And it's a very, very simple framework. But if it just gives them an idea, these are, these are people who want to do something in the first place, otherwise they wouldn't be writing to me. Um, they just don't know what they can do. And rather, as you said, I think a few minutes ago, maybe they feel that, what can one person do anyway? What can I possibly do that's going to make a difference? And so, so many people who would love to make a difference end up not doing a thing because they just it just feels pointless to them. It just feels so tiny. It's like a drop in the ocean. And so, effectively, what I'm saying to them is, look, here's a simple framework that if you think of something to do and I'll help you that follows this framework then you're not just one person, you're not just a drop in the ocean, you're part of, of, of a team of 700 million. And together we'll be heard. We'll change the culture of governance. All right, let's talk about the word dapple. What does it mean and why is this word so important to you? Yes. Dapple is a word that I nicked from the Victorian Welsh poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. Anybody who's had to do English literature at school in this country and maybe in North America as well, may have come across this guy's poetry. Beautiful, beautiful, extraordinary poet. And um, he wrote a poem called Pied Beauty. And Pied Beauty is basically a hymn to the beauty of nature. And Gerald Manley Hopkins' idea about beauty in nature is that it's not simple single colours, it's sploshy colours. Um, if you can imagine one of those lovely old Japanese prints of um, a carp in the water. And the carp that the Japanese esteem most highly are the ones with the most random collection of splodges and sploshes and stripes and spots on their skin. And this is an aesthetic which I think is much more than a visual aesthetic. I think it's a philosophy of life, that if you mix things together... The English word dapple, of course, normally used to describe the coat of a particular kind of horse. A dappled horse is one that's not just a single colour, but is colours mixed together. And they are 
Okay, there's something amazing about a pure black stallion. Of course there is. But there's something just even more wonderful about a dappled pony, which has got three different colours, all splodged all over the place. I like mess and muddle. And I think that human beings thrive best in mess and muddle. And the most beautiful pictures and the most beautiful poems and the most beautiful ideas are always made when you mix things together. So my hero in this area, apart from Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, is, of course, the great Bob Marley, who composed for me, without realising it at the time, the Good Country Anthem, which is the song Stir It Up. And Stir It Up is what we need to do. And that's what's great about globalisation, because what it's done is it's made available to all of us all over the world at our fingertips for the first time in history, the complete range of human diversity, all the ideas, all the cultures, all the skin tones, all the uh, different ways of uh, fantasizing, all the different ways of inventing, all those different creativities. There can be no invention, innovation or creativity or progress in a monocultural environment. Hitler was a bloody fool. He'd never studied biology because he thought that if you get blue-eyed, blonde-haired people to make babies together, then, you know, the babies will turn into a master race. This is biologically nonsense. It's exactly the opposite. If you get people from the same gene pool to make babies together, then their offspring will get gradually more and more limited, and in a few generations they won't be able to count up to three. And what's, what's more, they'll be prone to all kinds of horrible genetic diseases. We all know, and I know from my own personal experience, that if you make babies with somebody from a different culture, then your children get progressively brighter and more gorgeous with every generation that passes. And I sometimes look at my own children and say, yeah, that was right. <laughs> so um, I believe in um, mongrels. You know, I'm a bit of a mongrel myself. And, and one of the ways of looking at the good country is that it's a universal mongrels club. All of the people who don't quite fit, maybe some of the people who do fit, but would rather fit in more places. The people who are of mixed race or mixed nationality or mixed religion or mixed language or mixed abode. You know, your teleport followers, they're part of the mongrels club because they don't live where they were born and they weren't born where they live. And they presumably, I hope, most of them, love the idea that we live in an age of incredible freedom and incredible richness. We can go where we want. We can experience what we want. And I feel so sorry for racists because they're missing the best thing about the modern world and the best thing about humanity which is the fact that all of those people are so different. And if you want new ideas, you need to talk to new people. And to, to be so mentally, spiritually and intellectually impoverished that you regard somebody as inferior because they're different, I feel so sorry for those people because they just don't get it. They just haven't understood. They're missing so much fun. I suppose they're anxious. I think I understand that. I think it's nice. I think it's a very, very kind of reasonable thing to to have that mindset that you don't get angry at someone immediately, even though, you know, for you there's something to get angry about, but at least try to try to understand, even if you don't agree at all. I think that's a good way to look at things. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really feel that I've got much right to condemn people. Um it's just by the merest accident that you grow up with one set of values or another, and um, I think it's I think it's it, it's important to 
to calm down a bit and not start off by being made angry by people's views. Um, and the very, very first exercise I think one should try to perform when one meets somebody with a very different view, even if it seems odious, is to try to imagine what it would feel like to think that way. Because, God, you make so much more progress that way. And, you know, one of the reasons why I'm not angry or appalled with um, the Trump victory is because throughout that election, I, what I spent most of my time doing was reading, listening to and observing very, very closely the people that supported this guy that I really, really didn't like at all and trying very, very hard to understand what it felt like to be them and to say the things that they said. And I got it. I got it 100%. I absolutely understand why they voted for him and why they said what they said. I wouldn't. I don't agree with them. I think they're wrong, and I think they've made the wrong choice. But to say that they're bad or, 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 or idiots, it's just not right. And it doesn't help. So maybe wisdom is not having opinions anymore. Well, it makes you more useful to humanity because you're not um, pushing on one side and pulling on the other. You're, you're interceding and you're helping to people to understand that the other point of view isn't necessarily untenable and that the people that you're dealing with are not necessarily brainwashed or idiots. They've got their view. Um, and that's the only way that one can, ever, um, one can ever come to any conclusions. I mean, you look at the history, of, for example, oh, the history of warfare, the history of, of terrorist and rebel movements. The only time any uh, terrorism um, activity was ever brought to an end was by debate and dialogue and intercession, however hateful that may seem. And however much you may have to hold your nose when talking to those people, nobody has ever defeated terrorism simply by, simply by um, attacking it and pushing it away. Right, let's talk about teleport for a minute. Um, I assume you're a big fan of us. Yeah, I, I, spend, I spend time on it I, ever since I saw it. I, I love it. It kind of works for me. Great. So what do you kind of see you and us could do together in the future, considering what we both do now? Well, I think that has to, that has to be a dialogue, doesn't it? Um, um, we should all, before too long, sit down and have a think about that. But thoughts off the top of my head. First of all, when I was talking about the 10% of, of humanity who um, are just as much citizens of the world as they are citizens of their own country, I think that probably maps pretty much perfectly onto your crowd. I think your average teleport user, almost by definition, um, is, you know, 80, 90% probability part of that um, 700 million cohort of um, dappled mongrels. Sorry, that sounds rude. <laughs> those, those, are the those are the highest compliments that I'm capable of paying anybody. Um, so the fact that we are um, engaging with groups that have an awful lot in common means that, frankly... Um, we're dumb if we don't figure out a way of, of, of doing what we're doing together. The other thought off the top of my head is that I'm also very interested in the idea of extending the good country to the level of the good city and the good town. And um, people um, moving to and living in and stirring up the gene pool, pool in cities and towns, they're a very, very valuable influence. Um, on the life and the culture of that place. What I'm interested in is not so much uh, the engagement within cities as the engagement between cities. Um, I think it's very, very important that we get cities talking to each other. Um, 
And perhaps one of these days I'm even going to give up on nations. Nations are my first love and I understand them very well. And all of the um, advisory work I've ever done pretty much has been to people who run countries rather than cities. But the simple fact of the matter is that most countries are too big to work with. If you've got a population of, of you know, crazy numbers like, like 100 million, that's not governable. Not really. You can't govern an entity like that. Cities are much more compact. You can feel a sense of belonging and attachment to a city, even perhaps especially if it's not your city of birth. I was reading um, the diaries of Cosimo de' Medici the other day, um, an Italian uh, prince who um, in the late Middle Ages um, announced one day that he'd reached the age of 50 and he spent the whole of his life making money and spending money and he decided that he preferred to spend it. So he was going to spend the rest of his life spending the money he'd made. And what did he spend it on? He spent it on Florence, his city. Why did he do that? Well, partly because he wanted to go to heaven, um, partly because he wanted his name to live on forever, and here we are still talking about him on the 14th of December 2016, so it worked. But more importantly, it was natural to him to give money to his city. It was a natural extension of his personality and his family. He had a mutual relationship of love and trust for that city, even though it was full of people who hadn't even come from there. And it seems to me that the relationship we have with cities today has become, from a relationship of love and trust, it's become a relationship of prostitution. We live in cities, we throw a handful of coins at the administration and we say, here, sort everything, and I don't want to know about it. And we don't want to know about it. We don't want to know how it's run, we don't want to know how it's organised, we, we, we just, we're like consumers, the customers of prostitutes. We just complain if it doesn't, if it doesn't um, reach our, our expectations. So, sorry, I went off on a bit of a rant there, but um, this is one of the reasons why I think cities are very interesting places and I think there's a whole load of um, progress to be made in that area and we should talk about that. I also know that you're good friends with uh, Prakana, who's one of our advisors. Sure, absolutely. Paga and I go, well, I was going to say we grew up in the same mountain village. That's a slight exaggeration, but we've known each other for a few years. So how much are your ideas influenced by by his theories and his practices? Because he talks about this global connectivity and uh, and all that. So how much do you kind of take note of that when when doing what you do? Um, well, I... I hope that Parag is as much influenced by me as I am by him. I mean, the world needs Parag Khanna. There's no question about that. Um, he's a super guy, and I have enormous respect for his, his abilities. We don't see each other nearly enough, um, basically because um, uh, I'm constantly traveling, and so is he. And the chances of us ending up on the same city on the same day are, are very, very remote. But you make me feel bad. You make me think I should be calling him more often. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do. I was trying to make you feel bad. Well, it worked. Uh, Parag, if you're listening to this, please give Simon a call. He misses you a lot. So what's next? What's next for you? What's next for your projects? What are you working on now? And what do you kind of want to work on in the near future? I'll tell you what I'm working on right now. Okay, so the global vote... Um, with the exception of the Austrian presidential election, the global voters got it wrong every single time. Okay, well, got it wrong is the wrong way to put it, in the sense that the person they elected, and we're talking about um, large numbers of people from 130 different countries, um, they always have always elected somebody different from the one that ends up getting elected in the country, right? So in the US election, for example, the uh, global voters 
gave uh, Hillary a landslide victory of 52% of the votes. Uh, Jill Stein, the Green candidate, came second. Um, a guy called Trump came third. Um, and um, Gary Johnson uh, came nowhere because he um, revealed accidentally in a TV interview that he didn't know where Aleppo was. In fact, he didn't even know it was the name of a city. So obviously, obviously, the global voters figured that he was not good news for the world if he should become, in the unlikely event, um, president of the USA. Um, and so we've done uh, 11 elections so far, and I've got 11 winners who arguably uh, have the broadest democratic mandate of any politician in the history of the world because they've been elected by people from 130 different countries, right? That's half the countries on the planet, more than half. And they also have quite a lot of time on their hands right now because they're unexpectedly not the president of their country. Um, so um, what I'm planning on doing, and I've been talking to one or two about, of them about it recently, is creating a glorious losers club, um, which is these amazing people uh, who didn't quite become president of their country, but who... <clears throat> have the broadest democratic global mandate of any politician in history. So suggestions, please. What are we going to do with these people? Um, we, I, I mean, Hillary Clinton should probably be one of them, but I'd be perfectly happy with Jill Stein if, if, um, if Hillary is too busy. But, you know, we've got Hatler Thomas here, who I mentioned before, who gave a wonderful uh, talk at TED Women recently about um, not winning the Icelandic presidential election. I've got this... Um, uh, amazing guy, Xavier Chishimba, um, who didn't win the Zambian presidential election. But when I sent him my two standard questions, which are, what is your vision for Zambia's role in the world? And if you become president, what are you going to do for the rest of us, the rest of the 7 billion who don't live in Zambia? He sent me an 18-page dissertation on, <laughs> on what his vision of Zambia in the world, and it was amazing. So I've got 11 of these people, and it's growing by one every month. So my pet project right now is to try to figure out what to do with those guys. As I say, any suggestions, please send me an email. Right, guys, if you're listening and if you have any ideas, feel free to send them to... Simon at good.country. Right, and write nice emails. Don't be mean or you'll make Simon sad. Oh, I'm used to it. What the hell? <laughs> right, so we should really wrap this up now. I think it's our longest podcast ever and we got to stop at some point, but... Thanks so much for chatting with us, Simon, and uh, good luck with everything. Thanks, Simon. Best fun I've had for weeks. <laughs>